You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Raymond Pierre Hilton from Virginia Union University. His paper was entitled not by halves, the calling and politics of the French church ministries in Dublin, 1662 to 1693. In 1702, Benjamin de Dion, the embattled French church minister at Port Arlington, defiantly replied to the Anglican Bishop of Kildare that he was not about to perform his ministry by halves. Uh, he was not about to do that in order to accept a humiliating compromise in compliance with the bishop's wishes. What has not often been brought out is that this most dramatic of confrontations between conformity and dissent within Ireland's Huguenot population had its roots in Dublin some 40 years earlier. Transplanted as they were into an environment they neither envisioned nor anticipated, the French uh, Huguenots who began trickling into Ireland shortly after the Restoration, and then from 1681 flooding in, experienced a disorientation that would render many of them susceptible to manipulation by the most powerful among their hosts. Religious faith and observance was at issue. Uh, It was concerned over uh, preservation of the Reformed faith that, after all, had been the primary reason most had left France. Even as the persecution of these Huguenots became increasingly severe, exile was never their preferred outcome. Nor did the majority embrace their uncertain new lives with great enthusiasm. It was the intolerable nature of their condition in France, rather than the promise of tax exemption, freeman status, or ready admission into the guilds that swayed them. At least exile to Britain or Ireland offered a degree of religious autonomy. But to how great a degree, that became the point of contention. The first Duke of Ormond counted uh, the settling of French Protestant among his priorities in realizing his vision for modernization of Ireland as he resumed the vice regency in 1662. But a scheme for a compliant Huguenot community, united under conformity to the Anglican Rite, languished when many exiled preferred, in fact the majority preferred, uh, their own brand of dissent. The Huguenot refuge in Ireland would be thus confined to an enduring dichotomy with conformed and nonconformist congregations coexisting in Dublin into the 1810s. At the heart of the controversy were the French church pastors. This paper proposes to study these early ministers in Dublin and their modes of appointment and how this impacted upon the Huguenots and their hosts. Who these pastors were, what they stood for, how they reconciled their exile to their past 
lives and careers? These are questions worth posing. Uh, in attempting to discover answer, the interplay of politics is of vital importance as we witnessed how the dichotomy unfolded and endured. Ormond's statute of 1662 encouraging the uh, settlement of foreign Protestants was the initial step. However, organized French Protestant worship began in Ireland three years later in 1665. Until then, their numbers had been considered inconsequential from an official point of view. But now that there existed a sufficient population to warrant Dublin Castle's attention, steps were to be taken to ensure that the French worshippers be organized among the lines favored by the Duke. That is, the conformed model pattern after the French Church of the Savoy in London, with the congregation meeting at St. Mary's Chapel inside St. Patrick's Cathedral, subject to the authority of the Archbishop of Dublin, and required to include in their service a French translation by Jean Durel of the Book of Common Prayer. The inaugural French pastor, chosen for the congregation by the Duke of Ormond, was, unsurprisingly, his own chapel, Dr. Jacques Hérôme. This initial top-down method of selecting the first two pastors, Hérôme and Moses Viridé later on, did not work out well. Likely, this obvious politic, the obvious politics of cronyism uh, engendered a bit of resentment among the congregation. It must be admitted, though, that Jerome was not without his qualifications. Uh, he was educated in divinity at the prestigious University of Saumur, had a reputation as a particularly scholarly and erudite minister, and had served in the ministry in Normandy and in exile at both French churches of Savoy and Somerset House in London. However, he proved to be a disastrous French church pastor in Dublin. You could say that he learned to play the game of ecclesiastical politics very quickly and too well. Using his leverage with the Duke and others, he liberally feathered his nest through pluralism of benefices. At one stage, he held eight and a total of 12 uh, benefices during his 30-year uh, sojourn, 20th year sojourn in Ireland. He arrived in 1662 with the Duke of Ormond's entourage and died at Carrickon Shore in 1682. Uh, nor did it end there. He was deeply involved in various personal business schemes. Uh, linen manufacturers in Callan and Carrick, chief among them. Grossly neglecting his charge with the French congregation, his record-keeping fell off, and by 1672, the French church was in a shambles. Services sporadic, and half the remaining former congregants had lapsed into nonconformity. Jerome seems to have spent most of his time tending his enterprise in Carrick, to whence he actually shifted his residence. He was replaced in the French church pastorate by yet another of the Duke's favorite, Moses Viride and the Duke himself returned in 1677 as Lord Lieutenant for the fourth time. Under Viride's aegis, though hardly through his own efforts, uh, the moribund French congregation was revived by the onset of severe uh, persecution in France of French Calvinists, beginning with Marillac's uh, Dragonade in 1681 in Poitou province and culminating in the 1685 
revocation of the Edict of Nantes, also called the Edict of Fontainebleau. Uh, impacting Ireland almost immediately, the wave of refugees swelled Dublin's Huguenot population. Uh, Viride appears to have benefited from his connection as the son of a noble in the service of the Duke of Orléans, and then as the husband of Lady Dorothy Coote, the eldest daughter of the first Earl of Montrath. Now, Viride, despite his family affiliations, did not demonstrate a particularly strong or decisive character and experienced difficulty coping with this massive influx, and particularly with the resurgent upsurge of Huguenots from the southern provinces of France, who tended more towards a nonconformist stance. Perhaps an innate sense of aloofness also impeded effective communication with his congregants, and thus prevented him from detecting a potential crisis situation early on. This happened when a substantial number of his worshippers tried to make common cause with Anglophone Presbyterians in 1683, which definitely was a no-no as far as the Duke of Ormond was concerned. Uh, Viride panicked and appealed to Ormond, who, through his Lord Deputy and son, the Earl of Arran, forcibly suppressed both Huguenot and Anglophone dissenters. Perhaps on the verge of a breakdown, and certainly having lost control of the situation, Viride shortly thereafter abdicated many of his uh, duties to assistant pastors before resigning in 1685, and the fiasco was papered over by his convenient collation to the Anglican vicarage at Arklow. After the brief interim assistant pastorates of Jean Majou and Antoine Nabez, Joshua Roussel from Dauphiné province was first appointed as Viride's assistant, then actually succeeded him on the 16th of June, 1685. This marked a departure from the top-down appointments. The congregation and consistory seem actually to have had some real input in the selection process, and Roussel was a very popular choice, whose background contrasted sharply with his more aristocratic predecessors. He seems to have little or no familiar connection with the nobility and was respected as an activist voice against Louis XIV's repressive policies. Roussel had already had some 25 years' experience in the Calvinist ministry in France as pastor of Anduze, then Saint-Christophe, then Le Vigan, and finally Avez. Roussel, and to a lesser degree his son Charles, openly sided with resistance leader Charles Brousson in mounting campaigns against the growing surge of official harassment when ministers from a far field as Dauphiné, Vivarais, the Cévennes, Upper and Lower Languedoc, Saint-Onge and Poitou met near Brousson's house and drew up plans for a campaign of non-violent defiance. The elder Roussel was named moderator of the General Assembly of the Churches from Cévennes and Givaudan, and this, but this would crumble in the face of violent attacks by soldiers under the command of the Marquis de Saint-Ruth during the summer of 1684. The Roussels escaped and were tried in absentia. The father was sentenced to death by being broken of the wheel, and they were more, they were more merciful with the son. He was only sentenced to the less severe penalty of hanging. 
When searching for an answer as to why this apparent departure from normal procedure occurred, it may be of significance that Ormond himself had been removed as Lord Lieutenant on the 24th of February, 1685, and until the appointment of the second Earl of Clarendon to the Vice Regency on 1st October, 1685, the governance of Ireland was in a transition state under Lord's Justice. One of those Lord's Justice was Sir Arthur Forbes, Earl of Granard, who, as a devout Presbyterian, would have been far more sympathetic to Roussel's radical views and more attuned to the need for the pastor to be someone mainly non-aristocratic, to the many mainly non-aristocratic, Calvinist-oriented French congregants, something they could more ease, someone they could more easily identify with, and even a role model. Since the strong hand of Orman had been taken out of picture, and Clarendon, and as it turned out, de facto the Duke of Turconnell, had yet to assume control, the government un- operated under the watered-down powers, and the Lord's Justice undoubtedly understood their vulnerability. It must be kept in mind, too, that the Huguenot refugees had been surging at an accelerating rate. And no one was certain how large the French population in Dublin, even Ireland as a whole, could become, or how powerful a factor they might eventually be. It was thus all the more expeditious to placate them. Uh, Roussel, too, had, by virtue of his sentence and execution by effigy, and the confiscation of his property, he had the aura of martyrdom, and thus respect, uh, since he was also somewhat con- accepting of conformity within the Church of Ireland, he seemed an apt choice. However, the unfolding events in the British Isles in 1688, resulting in the supplanting of King James II by William and Mary, and the assumption of power in Ireland by Tyrconnell, and the War of the Two Kings transformed the landscape once again. Though details remain uncertain, it seems that Joshua Roussel was imprisoned for a while, and his son Charles may have gone into hiding. Records were sparsely kept, and even worship services were suspended. The extensive reason for Roussel's detention was that the French ambassador, Jean-Antoine de Marme, Comte d'Avaux, had requested it with the eventual aim of having deported him, him deported to France as a convicted felon. Apart from this, however, there was anxious, ample reason for the Jacobite government to be wary of the Huguenots and keep them under surveillance and restriction as potential fifth columnists. A frequent worshipper at the French church, though of Dutch origin, was the merchant Bartholomew van Homerick, who was attainted for treason by the Irish Parliamentary Act and was at that time acting as Auditor General for King William's forces. Also, Huguenot military units were serving in Ulster as part of the Williamite Expeditionary Forces commanded by the Duke of Schomburg, also a Huguenot. Certain Dublin-based Huguenots were listed among the attainted traders who took refuge in Chester to wait out the Jacobite storm. Uh, among them, stationer Thomas Sisson and the merchants Gideon and Charles Delone. Uh, Whatever the complete picture might have been, the subsequent Williamite victories altered the dynamics. Joshua Roussel was not deported, and the worship at French Patrick's, as it was popularly called, uh, continued apace. 
Then at a crucial juncture, the situation took another turn with Joshua Roussel's death in March of 1692. To be sure, many of the original French church worshipers settled in Dublin during Ormond's time returned, but they were increasingly overshadowed by a powerful new wave of Huguenot refugees. Near the quarter century following the Williamite reduction of 1691, which witnessed the most massive influx of Huguenot refugees and settlers into Ireland, the establishment or embellishment of some 28 to 33 putative population clustered uh, anchored around an arc generally running from Belfast in the north to Cork in the south, to Dublin and Port Arlington buckling down the center. They hailed from all regions of France and all, from all socioeconomic backgrounds. There were military veterans, merchants, brewers and tavern owners, milliners, barber surgeons and physicians, laborers and two lunatics, uh, <laughs> vinegar makers, hatters, glovers, goldsmiths, painters, virtually all fields of human enterprise and endeavor. There was also now a strong leader on the scene to replace the Duke of Ormond. This time it was a Huguenot noble, Henri Massu, Marquis de Ruvigny. Uh, Ruvigny acted as, had acted as deputy general for the Huguenot population in France prior to the Reformation, I mean, re- revocation. Afterwards, he settled in Greenwich and joined King William's army in Ireland. His cavalry charge at the Battle of Ockham was said to have been the decisive blow and established Ruvigny's reputation for military prowess. Basking in King William's favor, he had a spectacular political rise, attaining the ranks of Major General, Lieutenant General of all forces in Ireland, Baron Port Arlington and Viscount Galway, finally Earl of Galway and Lord Justice of Ireland in 1697. Galway personally favored a stronger degree of conformity to Anglicanism and attempted to implement it, but encountered staunch opposition from both without and within the French Patrick's congregation. Some two-thirds of Dublin's Huguenot population opted for nonconformity, founding dissenting chapels in Bride Street in 1692 and later Lucy Lane in 1697. It was the issue of pastoral appointments that split French Patrick's after Joshua Roussel's death between those longer-established worshippers who, who, who supported Roussel's son Charles and those who were more, and who were more independent-minded and the recently arrived multitudes who favored Lord Galway's direction of affairs. Charles Roussel openly petitioned for his father's post and was immediately countered by Galway's supporters who favored Jean Severin, who had once ministered in Greenwich, where he curried the favor of the Ruvigny family. He was uh, especially supported by the veterans of the Huguenot regiments in uh, King William's army, who had been pensioned off in the Irish establishment following the Peace of Limerick. The Roussel-Severin rivalry reached such an intensity that a hearing had to be held before the Lord's Justices and the Privy Council where on 13th May 1692, Roussel's appointment was confirmed. Two weeks later, however, on 29th May 1692, Roussel lost the vote of confidence in the consistory, and Viscount Galway's adherents were able to force in uh, another one of the Ruvigny family's personal chaplains, Gabriel Barbier, as assistant pastor, arguing that the congregation had increased in such numbers as to challenge the oversight 
by a single individual. This uneasy state of affairs persisted for a further three months before Roussel, perhaps realizing that the steady stream of new arrivals was working against him and would presently turn the demographic situation increasingly in Barbier's and Lord Galway's favor, resigned grudgingly in August of 1692. He then surprisingly entered the Church of Ireland ministry, holding benefices until his death in Dublin uh, on 14th February 1754 at the incredible age of 102. This is the record I could, I could find for longevity among Ireland's Huguenots thus far. The French church consistory with Galway's faction now in full control left the choice uh, of second minister to the Viscount, and he rather predictably picked the conveniently available Severin. Alarmed by the surge of Huguenot worshippers who preferred to embrace nonconformity and whose numbers far outstripped their own, the pastors and consistory of French Patricks and probably the Archbishop of Dublin pressed for Viscount Galway's intervention to effect an amalgamation of all Huguenot worshippers. In April of 1693, negotiations were underway between pastors Severin and Barbier on one hand from conformists and the dissenting French ministers Barthélemy Balaguier and Joseph Lagacherie on the other, with Galway in a rather uncomfortable mediating position. Articles of unification were drawn up and approved by Galway, and the French Patrick's congregation voted affirmatively. But the nonconformist worshippers overwhelmingly rejected the, the proposal. As it proved, the last chance for confessionally unifying and the dissenting and conformist trans within Dublin's Huguenot refuge had passed, and the rift would be permanent. Thereafter, although the French conformist pastors were appointed from the top-down model, i.e. Uh, under the aegis of the Archbishop of Dublin and whatever secular powers that be held sway in Dublin castles, the dissenters determined theirs in a sort of shared governance manner through the consistorial review and voting on candidates for the position as they had done so before in France. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.